It's Wednesday, March 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We may soon have a report detailing everything the government knows about UFOs. Tucked away in the $2.3 trillion appropriations bill that President Trump signed last year was a provision saying that the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense must present a UFO report. Reese Tebow, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more on this report, which could be out by June. Next, the migrant crisis on the border continues, with very few solutions in place and numbers expected to swell going into April and May. In the Rio Grande Valley, we are hearing of border agents releasing migrants without court dates. And in Donna, Texas, we've seen the first pictures of overcrowding in a temporary overflow facility. Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios, joins us for what the scene is like at the southern border. Finally, from good news to questions and concerns, AstraZeneca released details from its U.S. trials that their vaccine is 79% effective against COVID-19. Then, hours later, federal officials said that they might have used outdated information and was missing a month's worth of data, another misstep in the rollout. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for the latest. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Well, for me, the whole thing was this, and that's why we put that language in there. And people think about space aliens. For me, is there's stuff flying over military installations, and no one knows what it is, and it isn't ours. So for me, that's logical. You want to know what it is. I mean, it's common sense, right? Stuff's flying over the top of your most sensitive installations, and it's not ours, and no one knows whose it is. You should find out what it is and tell us. Joining us now is Reese Tebow, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Reese. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's talk UFOs. I always love this subject. We got some interesting things coming up. We're expecting a possible report coming out maybe by June. This uh, all has to do actually with the uh, COVID relief bill that uh, was passed uh, by President Trump, the $2.3 trillion appropriations bill. In it, there was this little provision, this little bit of language that said that the Director of National Intelligence Uh, and the Pentagon, they need to come together and make a report on everything we know about UFOs. So, Reese, tell us a little bit about uh, what we can expect. I must admit, it wasn't until the past few days when former intelligence director John Ratcliffe started talking about this report that I even knew it existed and that I even knew it was somehow attached to that massive appropriations bill that Trump signed last year. Here's what Ratcliffe said in an interview with Fox News. He mentioned this report and said that there are, quote, a lot more sightings that have been made public. This is sightings of UFOs, of objects that the military has been unable to identify. Uh, He hinted that those sightings would be made public in this forthcoming report and that they would be dealing with sightings from all over the world. Yeah, it's, you know, and it goes by a bunch of different names. Uh, Obviously, UFO is the most common one unidentified flying object. But as far as the agencies go, they're called unidentified aerial phenomena or anomalous aerial vehicles. So they go by a a few different names. This kind of leads us a little bit down the line of what we might expect too in this report. I mean, it's going to deal with these flying objects, things like that. Not so much aliens per se, alien autopsies. You know, I I love to kind of go down the rabbit hole on these things, but this is going to be strictly things that we've seen in the air, it seems like. 
That's right. And I think that's important to note. I think that UFOs often get conflated with aliens, with extraterrestrial life and activity. You know, some folks who are interested in this subject are certainly interested in that aspect. But there are a whole lot of other national security sector people who make a very logical argument for studying this stuff. And, And they say, look, if there are objects that are flying over the country over military bases and U.S. intelligence agencies can't identify or explain them, it's prudent that the U.S. study them, not necessarily because they might be aliens, but because, you know, it could be U.S. adversaries spying on military bases or something to that effect. I mean, Radcliffe was just on Fox News talking about it. Senator Marco Rubio was just pinned down by TMZ, of all places, asking about this stuff. And that was Marco Rubio's stance on it. He said there's things flying over air bases that we can't tell what they are or why they're moving the way they are. And it's important that we need to know. TMZ asked Marco Rubio about some alien stuff. And he's like, I don't really know about that. But still held to that line that, you know, we don't know what some of these things are that have been spotted. Let's try to find out about it. And, you know, that interest is there. People really heat up when they talk about this. You did mention in your article, though. uh, So what was some of the language in that bill that is prompting this report? And then on the other side of it, you said there could be some delays because a lot of these agencies miss these deadlines a lot of time, you know, so why might we see some delays? Yeah. Yeah. So um, come with me down the bureaucratic rabbit hole here. So this bill, I should say this provision, it was included in the Intelligence Authorization Act, which was itself included in that big appropriations bill. But the thing is, the language mandating a report. It was not in the bill itself, but it was in the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the bill. And this is one of those distinctions that, you know, really it matters, but it is sort of splitting hairs a bit. But it matters because, as one Senate aide told me, it's not technically statute if the words are not in the bill language. However, agencies often treat report language and bill language in the same way. And so the Senate officials who I spoke with do not expect the agencies to ignore this, but they did warn me that they could miss the deadline by a little bit because that has happened in the past. And while I'm talking about the deadline, I should say Trump's signing of the appropriations bill began a 180-day countdown. And, And so he signed it in late December. That puts us at some point in June, which is when we currently expect a report to be released. I think it'd be really fun, obviously, really interesting to see some of this stuff if we can. And, you know, right now in a time when we're really gearing up our space travel again, we're going back to the moon, we're heading to Mars. You know, we have the new rover that just went out there. It would be really interesting to look into all of this. And I know the interest and enthusiasm is there on the part of the the Internet folks that live on the Internet. You know, it would just be really cool to see some information and then have everybody go haywire pulling it apart. Reese Tebow, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Let's get these kids out of CBP custody, get them into HHS custody. Um, We've got to treat this issue in a way that is reflective of our values as Americans and do it in a way that is fair and is humane. Joining us now is Steph Kite immigration reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. 
wanted to catch up with you about the border crisis that we have going on right now at the southern border. The Biden administration is having a tough time at getting it under control. There's a lot of things floating in the air right now, but I wanted to start off with some pictures that we got over the weekend about one of these uh, facilities where it's one of these temporary overflow facilities where there's a lot of families and children held there. The media has not been allowed access to any of these sites right now, but we got some pictures from Representative Henry, Henry Cuellar from Texas. Tell us what we saw in those pictures. So the images that were released by Congressman Cuellar, who is a Democrat whose district is on the border between the U.S. and Mexico, um, the photos really give us our first real glimpse into the the circumstances that migrants are finding themselves in after they cross the border, especially in these overflow facilities. You see fairly crowded rooms of people. There are kind of these plastic dividers that keep different groups of migrants separate from each other. You see the aluminum blankets to help keep them warm. You see them laying on the ground. And it's important to note that of these pods that we see surrounded by plastic separators, They're supposed to only hold around 250 to 260 people, but at least one of them had more than 400 boys held in it. So we're certainly seeing overcrowding in some of these stations. So let's talk a little bit uh, about another story that popped up also. This uh, was concerning Border Patrol agents who were uh, getting some of these migrants and then letting them go without giving them a, a court date, any paperwork. I think they did say that they were still at least screening them, getting biometric information and all that, but they weren't getting any court dates or other paperwork. This was something that as I was reporting this out and talking to various sources involved in this, they were pretty shocked that Border Patrol would be using prosecutorial discretion to just release people without so much as a court date. It's something that people said was unprecedented. Well, certainly Border Patrol and ICE have in the past released families and sometimes given them notices to appear in court that don't even have a date on it. There have certainly been circumstances where officials have felt the need to very quickly release families. But this really is a very clear example of just how overrun and overworked a lot of border officials are, that they're at a place where they feel the need to very quickly release people once they catch them crossing the border and not even giving them a court date to show up to. And sometimes there's been reports of migrants being uncertain about how they would be contacted in the future after being released from Border Patrol. Were these Border Patrol agents kind of doing it on their own discretion or was this a guidance that was set down from leadership? How how did that, uh, you know, how did that? Yeah, guidance. Guidance was sent from leadership to Border Patrol, and this, I should specify, is just in the Rio Grande Valley sector, as far as we know. And this is, they had already had the ability to do this, but Border Patrol checked in and wanted to know for sure whether they were allowed to legally just release families in this way. And leadership said, yes, you do, and listed some scenarios that they should look at first before they just start releasing people, saying that they should release them when you see 100% capacity at your station, which in the Rio Grande Valley, that sector has been far beyond 100% capacity for a while now. We've talked about this, Steph, you and I have talked about this uh, between the policies and kind of the perception and migrants not even hearing the message, they're still coming, but the numbers aren't as bad yet as they were in 2019 at the very peak of the surge. But, you know, we're still waiting for April and May when it gets a little warmer. These are the peak months for migration. So we're expecting this to get a little worse. You know, we're also seeing the Biden administration not using Title 42, which is the mechanism that they would use to send families back to Mexico and all that, not using it that much uh, when it comes to families. 
Yeah, to your first point, the key word is really yet that we haven't seen the levels that we saw in 2019. Right now, the only public monthly data that we have from the Department of Homeland Security is for February. And even in February, when you look at the unaccompanied minors crossing the border, it is already pretty close to the peak of 2019. We are a long way off when it comes to family migrants crossing the border compared to 2019. But we have already seen those numbers start to pick up pretty quickly. And as you pointed out, we're seeing that the Biden administration continues to say that they're using Title 42 to return families, that their policy is to return families who cross the border to Mexico. But in the past week, according to data that I was able to obtain, they've only been able to return about 13 percent of families who have crossed the border, which is a very low number and far lower than it has been in previous months solutions to all this. Obviously, this is very tough to handle. The Biden administration is is trying as hard as they can. They sent some officials over to Mexico and Guatemala to see what kind of deals that they can work out. Did we get any information about what happened with those deals or possible solutions to getting this under control? We're not sure exactly what they've been working out with Mexico and Guatemala after those talks, but we are seeing the administration look at a couple of different avenues to try to solve this problem. And of course, immigration is very complex and there's not really going to be one fix to everything. But one thing that they're doing is trying to make sure that they can more quickly release families and children who are in their care to make room for more migrants coming across the border. And that includes releasing kids to families who are already in the U.S. quicker. The other thing, as you pointed out, is they are in discussions with Mexico and Guatemala about how to address these migration trends and things that they've talked about in the past include creating asylum or refugee systems that allow migrants to apply from their home country to prevent them from coming across Guatemala and Mexico to the U.S. And they've already restarted one program that allows some migrant minors to do just that. Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If you look at it, the data really are quite good. But when they put it into the press release, it wasn't completely accurate. So we have to keep... Uh, essentially trying as hard as we can to get people to understand that there are safeguards in place. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Sure. Karen, I'm glad we can get you back on so we can follow this story of AstraZeneca. So we spoke on Monday about the good news from AstraZeneca. Their uh, news out of their clinical trials in the U.S. said that their vaccine was 79% effective against symptomatic cases of COVID, 100% effective against severe cases and prevented hospitalization. So it was all very good news. And then very early Tuesday morning, we got some new news that they might have been using outdated information. And this kind of called into question what the true efficacy is. I know AstraZeneca has had some other problems in the past a little bit. So now there's a lot more questions than we had before. So Karen, help us walk through what the update is. I wish I could tell you more, but we actually don't know what the new data is. They've promised it within the next 48 hours. That was this morning. So maybe we'll talk again in another day or two. But it has raised questions about that 79% efficacy figure. And the issue is, in the last month, there have likely been more people in the trial infected. We don't know how many uh, were in the vaccine arm versus the placebo arm, and therefore how effective the vaccine has been at preventing any symptomatic COVID disease or severe disease, people hospitalized, that sort of thing. 
this is coming from the Data Safety Monitoring Board. So they look, they're an independent group. You know, they said okay. that they were concerned about that outdated data. Dr. Anthony Fauci weighed in on all of this and said, it's kind of a shame that that happened, but this is also one of those safeguards. This is why we have all these independent boards. And this kind of shows that the system is working. People should feel better about the vaccine, I guess. But it does raise questions about why they released the information they did. Obviously, the more up-to-date information will be coming. They did qualify it as interim data, but they didn't specify that it was as of February 17th and not the current data. So it raises questions that didn't need to be raised, I guess, is is the best way to put it. And that's the discussion now, right? So Dr. Anthony Fauci put it as a safeguard, uh, uh, saying that this was a safeguard. There's a lot of other experts saying, well, you know, this raises all those unwanted questions. Could it undermine the vaccine? Uh, Could it pose more hesitancy to the vaccine? AstraZeneca, for their part, already had a few missteps throughout their whole process. A lot of this happening in Europe. You know, we talked about the blood clots yesterday. France is another example when they said it's not effective for older people. Backtrack it. Then the blood clot thing. And, you know, so they've had all these missteps throughout the way. You could look at it as a sign that all the other companies are doing incredibly well, that they have not made these kinds of missteps. But yes, it does seem like there's a cloud over this particular vaccine with a number of problems, even dating back to September. And then tell me a little bit about, you know, the promise for AstraZeneca. They were, it was going to be one of the cheapest and easiest to distribute. So a lot of developing countries were looking at this vaccine as something that they could be using Just tell me a little bit about how that figured into the whole picture of vaccine distribution. Sure. Well, this one was considered the front runner. Last year, the U.S. government bought 300 million doses of this vaccine while it bought 100 million of others because it saw it as the most promising vaccine. And again, it's easier to distribute. It doesn't need to be kept in a freezer. It can be distributed along the normal chain of vaccine distribution, and it's relatively inexpensive. So it was thought that this would be the answer for rural areas for countries that don't have a strong infrastructure of freezers and that sort of thing. So it really had had been seen as the potential savior of the developing world uh, in terms of vaccination. And hopefully it still will be. This does not, as Dr. Fauci said this morning, this is probably still, this is still a very good vaccine. We haven't seen all the data yet, but hopefully it will confirm it. In terms of older people, the UK or in Europe, there were questions raised about whether the vaccine would be effective in older people because it wasn't tested very much in older people there. It was included. Older people were included in the study in the U.S. And again, according to data they released yesterday, so we don't know if this needs to be updated, but it was 80 percent effective among those over 65. So it appeared to be extremely effective, even in older people. I mean, we'll have to wait for that data, obviously. My sense is that it will still come back safe and effective at a pretty decent number. But, you know, where that number lies is what's going to be the interesting part. And just talking about those missteps that have happened so far across the pond, you know, in Europe, in Norway, in places like Romania, they're saying that people are rejecting it. They had all these uh, sites set up and appointments that got canceled. People just flat out saying they don't want it. So, you know, I hope it doesn't really bog them down too much. Uh, You know, this kind of reporting error or, or, you know, failing to disclose all all of the information that way. It's probably still going to be safe, but we'll have to see what happens there. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.